Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. For our Bloomberg television and radio audiences worldwide, I'm David Weston. We're welcome now Mary Barr. She is the General Motors Chair and CEO. So, Mary, you are the woman of the hour, I must say, whether you like it or not. Let me ask the question, I think, on everyone's mind. What comes next? We know there's individual plans that have been struck at all three of the big automakers in Detroit. How far away are we from layoffs as other plants really run out of the parts? Well, uh, you know, David, first I want to say I'm extremely disappointed and frustrated that we're even on a strike. We didn't need to get here. General Motors has an exceptionally strong offer on the table. It's historic. It's the uh, uh, largest uh, increase from a, a wages perspective in our 115-year history, along with world-class health care benefits and many other provisions, job security, et cetera, uh, and a COLA adjustment. So when you look at the strength of the agreement we have on the, on the table, uh, you know, we really don't need to be here. Yes, they have one plant down right now, and, uh, you know, it'll impact uh, two, three very important products, two uh, uh, brand new, our Chevrolet Colorado and our GMC Canyon, both mid-size pickups that are in strong demand, as well as our, our Chevrolet cargo van that does exceptionally well in the market. So uh, this is having an impact, and we'll have to see uh, where they go next. I will say we're ready for this. You know, as we've dealt with uh, COVID and dealt with the semiconductor shortage, as well as other supply chain challenges that have, uh, you know, continued to persist from COVID, our team knows how to manage these situations. They're staying agile, and we're going to do what's right for the company. We're going to make sure everyone stays safe. But this is a strike that didn't need to happen. Mary, as you say, you've made an offer already for a rather substantial increase in wages. It's not what the UAW wants. Implicitly, you've agreed that they do need and deserve some increase in wages. But is this about more than that? Is this existential in a sense for the auto companies in terms of your need to move into electric vehicles and from the UAW's point of view that they believe that, in fact, moving to EVs will actually cut the workforce by as much as 40 percent? Well, you know, you're absolutely right. This is a, you know, a, a once in a century transformation we're in the middle of, of moving from internal combustion engine vehicles to electric vehicles. And at GM, we're at a very pivotal point because we have so many electric vehicles ready to launch in the process of launching. And this is important to securing all of our futures. We need to get these vehicles out. We need to, they're, they're wonderful vehicles. We've got uh, waiting lists for most of them or orders already in place. So it's important that we meet that demand. And one thing from a general Motors perspective, from job security, we have jobs for all of our people as we make this transformation. More than two years ago, we started planning for this. And one of the reasons General Motors invested in doing our own power units, which is a, a component that's very important on an electric vehicle, we designed them internally, and we are now allocating that production to the plants that build internal combustion vehicle engines right now. So we have worked very carefully to have a job for everyone so we can make this transformation together. And frankly, 
when you put a, a, a you know, have a strike and we're not making vehicles, you start to put that at risk. So it's a historic transformation. We need to make sure we can compete and we need the company to be profitable because those profits get invested in new products that again, it's a, it's a circle of when we invest in a new product, there's demand for that product from consumers that uh, provides the jobs because we're building those vehicles in our plants. We need to invest in our future and we have a plan to take all of our employees along. I think this is very important. So that concern there's not a place for them is not true at General Motors. Uh, if, Mary, you were to find it in your heart to come close to what they demand to accept it, what would it mean for the future of General Motors? You've just come out well, of bankruptcy 15 years ago, as I recall. You know, I think that's a, a very important point because if we can't invest in new vehicles, uh, which we need, we need to be profitable to do that, uh, then we're not going to have a strong future. And David, you know extremely well, this is a very competitive industry. There's new entrants that are not represented by the UAW that already had a lower uh, you know, wage structure. So we need to compete. I'm really proud of our manufacturing team, You know, the way they managed through COVID, the way that they uh, have worked and been very agile as we've dealt with all the supply chain shortages and the fact that uh, for the last two years uh, between our engineering and our manufacturing teams they've delivered uh, world-class quality as uh, recognized by JD Powers we have a strong team we want to do everything in our power to win the future secure their future and lead for the next 115 years uh, we need to be able to do that Mary are the negotiating teams meeting today to the best of your knowledge and by the way are you participating directly in any way I have been participating. I've been involved since before uh, uh, Ju uh, July 18th when the talks kicked off. I, I've been on call more than more than once a day, calls, text, uh, meetings, and I have been at the main table myself over the last few days. I'll continue to be extremely involved. Our team's ready. They're they're there waiting to negotiate. So you know, my my request is the UAW leadership needs to get back to the table so we can get these problems solved, get our people back to work. I think another important point is for every job that General Motors has, there's six more jobs in the economy that depend on us running. So this is broader than just General Motors. This is important for the plant cities uh, especially, but really for the nation. Yeah, we, we talk about 150,000 petitions, a lot more than that, to your point there. Lastly, Mary, uh, I'm mindful of the fact that your father was a tool and dime maker at Pontiac when my father was a tool and dime maker at AC Sparkplug, just some 30 miles apart. We, you and I, and as young people, have gone through UAW strikes, different from this one, but we've gone through them. What do you think our fathers, if they were with us today, what do you think they'd say to each other about what we're seeing right now? Well, um, I, you know, I think my father would say, if, if, as he looked at the, the uh, you know, historic deal that we put on the table, that the company is committed and wants to recognize our employees for their hard work and wants to make sure they have a secure future. So I think he would look at this offer, and if it was on the table for him to vote, he'd vote yes. Okay, Mary, thank you so much for your time. As I say, on a very, very busy day for you. I really appreciate it. That's Mary Barra. She's General Motors Chair and CEO. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. 
Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right. And well, our, our Geetha Ranganathan, she covers all the media stocks, which means she covers Disney, which means she's going down to their investor day. So she'll be all over the place, I'm sure. Hey, Geetha, there's going to be a lot to talk about at Disney here. Are they really going to sell the ABC television network? Definitely seems like it, Paul. I mean, um, Bob Iger just a few weeks ago, of course, at that Sun Valley conference said that, you know, they're not married to the linear TV network business. It's not core to Disney anymore. I mean, that's so ironic considering, you know, they've they bought ABC for that. It was that huge deal back in 1995 for 19 billion dollars. I mean, so much of, you know, Disney's uh, reputation has, you know, kind of been tied to its TV network. So it's it's. It's strange, but it really, I think what it really tells us is that they see the writing on the wall and they think that the pay TV universe is probably going to implode sooner than the rest of us wow. think. All right. So who could buy it and what's it worth? Okay, so there are a lot of rumors and a lot of press reports right now circulating. So there has been some talk about Disney exploring a, a sale of ABC networks and the owned and operated stations. They have about eight stations in top 10 markets uh, with Nexstar, which is the largest TV broadcaster right now in the U.S. So, uh, you know, Nexstar has said that they should they're very interested in the ABC assets. They should be able to to uh, acquire most of them without too much friction, meaning there is an FCC ownership cap of about 39% for broadcast stations. But Nexstar, because it already has a presence in most of these stations with their CW network, thinks that it should be able to get the deal done. Uh, that said, I mean, I think they still will have to, you know, and they have the uh, money. swap some... Uh, so that is a little bit of a question mark. <laughs> yep. So uh, we think that the ABC stations uh, are actually worth upwards of uh, stations as well as the network are, are worth upwards of, uh, you know, $4 billion. That's applying a pretty conservative 7x EBITDA multiple. Now, Byron Allen, who is like this really prolific media mogul, has put in a, a bid which uh, apparently values those networks at about 8 X EBITDA, which means that those, uh, you know, those the, the ABC property would be worth five billion. And obviously, Disney wants to get the most for it. The problem with most of these acquirers uh, or the parties that are interested in <laughs> in possibly acquiring ABC is that they're all highly levered themselves. So most broadcasters, uh, so even an XTR, for instance, currently has about seven billion dollars in debt. Uh, Allen Media obviously has a lot in debt. So we'll we'll have to see how they kind of get the deal done. So, Geetha, I guess that calls into question. It's one thing to sell a declining broadcast network and some TV stations. I think most people would agree that, all right, the time of that business is probably past. And it's all about streaming. The bigger question, I think, for a lot of investors, and you'll probably talk about it next week when you're down uh, visiting the Walt Disney folks, is ESPN. What do they do with ESPN? What do you think is kind of, what do you think they will do? What should they do? So ESPN, I actually think they definitely want to keep the asset. Now, remember, they are going to be breaking out the financials for ESPN uh, in a few quarters. That is what they've promised. It's going to you know, kind of be its own segment. And that's the first time that they're doing that in Disney's history. So they obviously want to clean up house before they do that. And we've seen a lot of, uh, you know, cost cutting. We've seen a lot of these new deals. They had that deal with, you know, Penn National. And most recently, and I think this is really transformative for the entire pay TV universe, is the deal that they inked with Charter. This is the first time in the history of, of you know, the pay TV media ecosystem that 
that uh, a, a content company is actually offering access to its streaming services, okay, and for, a, you know, kind of either a wholesale rate or even for free in certain cases. But the more important part is that they're actually going to offer access to the flagship ESPN streaming product when it goes out in full force, which probably will be sometime in 2025, 2026. We don't know. Uh, but they're definitely preparing for that future. That's what it looks like. So I don't really think that they want to kind of get rid of this asset. Maybe they really want to clean it up. Maybe they want to spin it out. But I, I, I still think they want to keep control of it. I wonder if this is like, Paul, a, a uh, the kind of shift that you saw when you know, radio used to be it. Radio yep. used to be the thing for listeners and for advertisers. And that all went away. And it's probably a completely uninteresting business right. for most people. <laughs> um, they went to TV, right? Is this linear TV going through that same transition, that same death? And then is streaming the new TV? Yeah, I mean, I mean it was, you know, we went from broadcast television when you had three networks and then four with Fox. And then cable TV came along, and that totally redefined what we watch, how we watch it, and it uh, it really made it so much more competitive. We got so much more product. Now you're even taking that to the next stage. And I guess, Geetha, that brings us to the question, if all the big media companies that you follow, the Paramounts of the world, the Warner Brothers, the Discoveries, is the, when you talk to investors, do they believe that this transformation can actually work and they can make money on it, or does nobody want to talk to you anymore? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of both. But I think the one thing, I mean, for any investor who had questions about whether streaming is a good business, I think we have our answer, right? Because we've seen Netflix kind of turn things around. They are actually uh, expected to generate about $7 billion in EBITDA this year, twenty approximately 20% margins. And the idea is that as they kind of gain subscribers and as they lower costs, they're able to kind of spread those costs over a wider base, eventually getting to you know a 25 to 30% margin, which then kind of makes you agnostic because in its heyday, you know, TV networks were generating about 30, 35% margins. So yes, streaming may not be better than the TV network business, but it could potentially be as good as, uh, again, that we're talking about Netflix, which is obviously the industry leader. It, it yeah. is going to be a much harder road for, for all these smaller companies, whether it's a Paramount or Warner Brothers Discovery, but they are kind of doing a lot in terms of content cost rationalization. Again, Paul, I mean, we, we've spoken about this many times, and I know you, you think too that there will be a streaming shakeout at some point. There will be consolidation. So all that is going to play out, I think, over the next, you know, 18 months, uh, 18 to 24 months. Uh, but but yeah, I think we will be, you know, we'll land up with maybe three, four major streaming players who should be all profitable, hopefully. All right. Now we've got some, uh, in addition to all of that, if that wasn't enough for the industry and for investors, there's also this uh, thing of strikes. We've got writers on strikes. We've got actors on strikes. What's the impact on media, on the companies, on what you and I and other consumers will be able to see on our TV screens and in theaters? Yeah, so definitely we're seeing some, uh, you know, small effects of that right now. Nothing really major in terms of disruption of schedules, but, you know, as we kind of get deeper into like the film slate for 2023 uh, and even 2024, that's when we're really going to start having some problems. We've already seen some film delays, you know, Dune 2, for instance, from Warner Brothers has already moved to 2024 because they're not, they're not able to market the film. Uh, they're not able to do promotions. So that's, you know, a lot of film studios are kind of running into that problem. In fact, from a financial aspect, though, what we're seeing is that most of these companies and uh, have actually raised their free cash flow guidance through the rest of the year. 
they've raised their free cash flow guidance, but they've lowered their EBITDA guidance because the lack of fresh programming is definitely going to have an impact on, you know, advertising sales. And that's what they've all said. They, they've all said, you know, expect double digit ad declines because you're not going to have any fresh programming. We really have nothing to go to advertisers with. I think it really becomes a problem in 2024 if, if you know, they're not able to resolve the strikes, if people are not get, going to get back, uh, you know, uh, to work and produce new content, we're going to have a real, real headache in yep. 2024. All right, Geetha, thanks so much for joining us. As always, Geetha is the expert. Geetha Ranganathan, she is covers all the media industry. Uh, and she's going to the Bloomberg park. Talks, and she's going down to on, Disney. On she's Monday fun. for the uh, investor. Yeah. I was thinking because Tucker asked when the last time I was there was. And I remember that the Corey Hart album, Boy in a Box, had sure. just come out. I bought the cassette for my Walkman. And <laughs> so I believe it was spring he break was so cool. of 1986. Spring break. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. All right, we talked about one of my favorite asset classes with Joe Mysek and Muni's. Another one of my all-time faves, really since the last 10 years, has been this private credit game. I love it, too. I love it, man. And we had this person in a day or two ago. She's more on the syndicated loan side, and I was saying, how much competitors are these guys to you? And she says, they're big. They're yeah. big, and they're getting bigger. Randy Schwimmer, co-head of Senior Lending and Senior Managing Director, Churchill Asset Management, joins us. Randy, talk to us about your business, the private credit business. How's it been this year? Are 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 there deals? Because it seems like seems slow, but I don't know in your market. What are you seeing? So uh, last time I was here, I promised you guys some good news. In okay. September, right? <laughs> so post Labor Day, we're all we always wait for the the post Labor Day rush. Well, I'm here to report that we have a post Labor Day rush. Okay. So let's talk with the public markets right now. So high yield bond market, which was kind of, you know, not very active all year. Rates are very high. Issuance low. They had an $11 billion week last week, okay? That's the uh, lo largest issuance in two years. So that's good. So that's waking yep. up. The liquid loan market, which you talked about, broadly syndicated loans, $20 billion so far in September, first two weeks. That's, that's more than any month, full month, all year long. So we're okay. starting to see some activity in the public side. Why? Because things are starting to heal. The economy is better. Inflation's under control. Um, the other thing that's going on now is some of the, as a result, the larger buyouts are starting to come to the market. We haven't seen any of those mega deals uh, this year, going back once the Fed started raising rates. So we now have the ninth largest deal um, ever since the Great Recession, a company called WorldPay. Yeah, that's, that's what this other guest was talking to yeah, us about. Yeah, it's being launched uh, this week, uh, $17 billion LBO, $9 billion in financing. Um, that's a big deal, and so the how much of that is private credit? Uh, so right now, it's not clear. It yeah. looks like it's you know some of it's going to be in that market, but that's a big number, right? For so that's something you would take a look at. Yeah, I think it's all about pricing and structure. Right. Okay. Um, but the fact that a large deal like that's coming out is a big deal. Um, I know one of your uh, all-time favorite restaurant chains, Foga de Chao, which is uh, <laughs> you know a billion-dollar deal also coming out. So what's happening now in the large-cap market? They're starting to wake up now. The the direct lending market, our business, has actually been active all year long. We, if you'd said to me back in January, Randy, what do you think the year's gonna be like? Just given all the static on rates and inflation, I would have said, boy, we'll be lucky to get to where we were last year. 
We are now at and perhaps even ahead in some of our businesses of last year, in part because of this flow going from public to private. So, um, and then I think, you know, our scale now is, is growing. We have the ability to, to hold larger deals. And so the result of that is these sponsors, they keep coming back to us <laughs> for, okay, we liked what you did the last deal. Let's do it again. We, you know, we negotiated all the documents. That was a pain in the neck. Let's, let's do just the same document and keep going. The other thing that's adding to the activity is these, and I mentioned this to you last time, the number of acquisitions that the platform businesses are doing in order to grow has significantly increased. So we actually, we just looked at the league tables for the quarter. We are, we're the most active lender in direct lending right now for, for add-on acquisitions. Churchill Asset Management. Churchill Asset Management. Um, and we're like the second largest for all everything. In, in the traditional direct lending business. So what's happening is our portfolio is actually generating deal flow. It's by just virtue of these are platform companies that are making acquisitions. You know, my wife calls it shopping in your closet. So <laughs> this is what's happening. The portfolio companies are actually generating deal flow. So we are having a bigger year than we thought. And then in our junior capital business, which is mezzanine debt, co-invest of equity, um, that team is having a significantly better year than last year because of the activity um, that the sponsors are looking for more equity to put into their deals because who knows when their next fundraising is gonna happen, they have limited capital, so they go to their LP relationships and say, hey Churchill, how would you like to put in some money into this deal? It's so interesting that this whole market that you guys, but also the whole industry is growing so quickly in the face of rising rates, right? Or is maybe because of rising rates. I was talking with Mark Lifschultz last week from Blue Owl. Yep. Um, and he thinks that we're going to see a $10 billion private credit deal, you know, shortly. Correct. Yeah. Um, which would be, you know, now I think the biggest single uh, direct lending deal is like $5 billion, which is already huge. No question. Um, is it because of rising rates that this industry is growing? I mean, why why are the banks letting so much of this yeah, so high the, get, get away? Get away. Yeah. So they've been letting it get away since 1993, right? Because they've been regulated consolidated out of the leveraged lending business, particularly in the middle market. So the deals that you're seeing now are very like corporate-y, double B, triple B, those kinds of things. Um, for, the, for the direct lenders, what's happening is everything else is coming our way. All the middle market flow is coming our way. Um, a lot of uh, the sponsors who are trying to get quick executions in this market are trying, trying to get this stuff done. Now, what's driving it? The investors who in a high-rate environment are looking for yield right now, uh, are looking to private debt. That's what's actually fueling our activity because the more money that we raise, the more fundraising that happens in our business allows us to scale our platform. The most interesting stat- So there's just so many more lenders out there. It's yeah. not as much about the borrowers well, necessarily. It's, it's more the investors who are focusing on the leading lenders like Churchill to, to dedicate their money to. So there was a, a survey, I was at a conference last week on a panel, 62% of investors surveyed said they were under-allocated private debt. That, was, that blew me away. Like, wait a minute. You, the three of us have been talking about private debt for mm. a couple of years now, right? You think this message is out there. But because rates are higher, and now I can get a 12% yield on an un, unlevered senior debt investment, you know, out of whether it's a Churchill or, you know, some of our other, you know, uh, uh, providers out there, that's a, that's a really good number. And so when you compare that to what, even what you can get in the bond market, what's happening is investors are saying, you know, I need to do more. Even though I'm maybe allocated right now to private debt, I need to do more. So I feel I'm 
that's two-thirds of the market saying they're under-allocated in this asset class, and we haven't really gotten going yet. I mean, it's still there's still a lot of runway for us. So are you guys raising money at the moment currently? Yeah, we're always raising always, money. Is that yeah, right? I'm, so, so I'm headed to Scandinavia next week to okay. meet with our clients and potential clients there, going to Copenhagen, going to uh, Stockholm, and I know your favorite, Helsinki. Yep. Um, <laughs> never been to Helsinki, so <laughs> let me know if you've got some good restaurants. And, but when I'm here, no, because it's Helsinki. It's Helsinki. Yeah. Okay. Do you like fish? Yeah. Um, so I was in, and I was in the West Coast this week, and I'm telling you, very sophisticated institutional investors are saying we'd like to talk to you about your platform because we think we need to do, explore more in the private debt space. So, who's your competition? Well, it's funny. We, you know, we don't really have competition. We have collaborators. We have. Uh, partners that we lend with. So what happens is since we're an investor in all of the funds with the sponsors that we're financing, we don't lose deals. They'll say, hey, even if, let's say, Blue Owl, perfect example, they say to Mark, hey, you know, we want you to lead this one because, you know, they tell us, Churchill, you led the last two, so we're going to give right. Mark one. They'll say to Mark, hey, would you please include Churchill in the deal because they're a significant LP investor in our fund. And Mark's saying, okay, fine, we'll give them a little <laughs> piece. So that, that makes us sort of invaluable to the sponsors because they know that we're always investing in their funds. But frankly, You're also investing equity into their equity fund. into their funds. And it also makes it invaluable for the other lenders out there because they, can, they know they can always count on Churchill for a good transaction to split the deal with them, lead the deal with them. And we, we frankly, whether we lead or you know, we co-lead with someone, all we really want to do is um, have split the deal 50-50, be able to talk to the economics in terms of the transaction so we control the deal. Um, but other than that, you know, we have a lot of partners out there that we do business with, and we're very happy to do business with them. All right, so you do a deal. How much do you sell off, and how much do you keep? We just did a financing right now. It was $500 million hold that we're, we're probably going to sell down to, I'm going to say, like $300 million, something like that. So you'll like still that. hold 300 of, of it? Yeah, yeah, Is that we, typical? Because um, at Chase Manhattan Bank, we'd sell down to 15 Exactly. Left. That's why you're not in the business anymore, okay? But what's happening is we have mouths to feed too, right? We have all these investors, and so the more investors that we have, the more we want to spread that wealth out to. And so the more money we raise, now we're going to spread 400 around. Now we do 500. But if you have 40 funds that you're allocating across all 40 funds, the, the, the amount of that deal per fund is really small. We don't have any exposure over 2% of the whole portfolio. What What is the uh, default rate? Because... People look at these juicy yields and say, sure, I want to get in. But this is floating rate debt, right? right? So the, some some of your deals previously would have been paying, I don't know, 6% interest. And now they're paying double that. Right. So you and that's got to be hard for some of the portfolio companies, yeah. right? So, so because we've been through this before, <laughs> we pre-model everything as if it's going to be at 12%. So we haven't had the kind of issues. Now, the interest coverage has shrunk for sure. We did a, just a, a model the other day, and it looks like instead of four times coverage, we're like two and a half times coverage because of that doubling of interest costs. It's still good. But, you know, the free cash flows of these companies and the growth of these businesses, I mentioned the add-ons, all of that is helping to grow those companies t to accommodate the higher debt. But still, you've got every deal we do, we look at and we say, what's going to happen if rates continue to go up? What's going to happen if we go into a recession? The result is we do only like five deals of every hundred that come in the door. Think about that. So I'm turning down 95% of every deal that comes in the door. I mean, that's a tough commercial 
mm-hmm. proposition, but the reason that we're successful. Because you're very picky. We're very picky, but we. You know the people you're lending money to. You're okay. working hand in hand with yeah. them. Yeah, and we don't see 100 deals. We see 1,000 deals. So yeah. we do 50 new transactions, 150 add-ons. And, and with each deal, we're doing more and more per deal. So we'll still do $6 billion or so of volume this year in just senior lending. What a business. I want to be in that business. I know, exactly. What am I doing here? <laughs> exactly. We get Randy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pep up my resume and Please send do. it over I'll to send you. Send it on. <laughs> All right, Randy, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting some of your time. Randy Schwimmer, he's co-head of Senior Lending, Lending and Senior Managing Director, Churchill Asset Management. And more than anybody else, I think he schooled us. Right. Well, he schools, I think, the industry because he also uh, is the publisher of The Left Lead, oh, which is right. one right. of the most that's popular right. um, places to get information on this industry. Yep. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's switch gears to our C-suite uh, uh, check-in here uh, today with Jenna Drosos, CEO of Signet Jewelers. Signet Jewelers uh, trades on New York Stock Exchange, SIG, based in Akron, Ohio. See, Matt, we got you another Ohio company. I like so it. So good stuff. It's got a market cap of $3.4 billion. Stock's up about 12 And it's a uh, very car-related town, right? Because yes. isn't that where tires. good Goodyear, yeah, yeah I One think. of the tire things. Yeah. Uh, Jenna, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about your business here. What are the trends you're seeing so far this year? And, and what are you telling your shareholders about next year? Yes, we're seeing some very interesting trends. Uh, in the second quarter, uh, we were able to over-deliver our uh, revenue and bottom line guide. Uh, and some of the strength that we saw was in lower-priced fashion jewelry. So jewelry under $1,000, uh, almost a back-to-school-like trend, whether you go back to school or not. Uh, you know, People often refresh their look um, at that time of year. And we saw strong sales. That bodes well for jewelry, jewelry being in the consideration set as people move toward holiday. I think the other really big trend that we've seen is that um, there has been a lull in engagements. Uh, so this year, calendar year 23, uh, engagements are down about 25% versus a typical pre-COVID year. That's a temporary COVID disruption. People usually get engaged 3.25 years after they meet. And, uh, and, you know, three years ago, we were in lockdown. And so people were not meeting in the same way. So well, that's romantic. That, uh, that, yeah, yeah, exactly. That, so that trough of engagements is happening right now. Uh, but we expect it to begin to come back in our fourth quarter. And that provides a three-year tailwind, actually, for us. Because about 50% of our business is in the bridal category. So do you care about the Chinese and coming in and, and buying stuff? Or is that really not your business, Chinese consumer, to, you know, tourists coming into the States? Is that or is that not really your business? Because I know for uh, a lot of the folks here in New York City, they they welcome. They can't wait for the Chinese consumer to come back. That's not really a big part of our business. So um, it's not a, a strong impact one way or the other. Um, what is interesting though, is that people tend to buy jewelry associated with travel. And, uh, and one of the things that we talked a lot about on our second quarter earnings call is the proprietary data that we um, now understand about couples relationship formation. So we have 45 milestones that we look at uh, that happened from, you know, we went to 
a movie all the way to we met the parents to we moved in <laughs> together. And uh, and so we can track that going on a romantic trip together is one of those milestones. So for our business, it was actually good to see a lot of couples traveling together over the summer, attending a concert together. That kind of thing is, is uh, good for future engagement ring sales. How about, you know, I think of uh, class rings. Yep. I think of Super Bowl rings. I think of signet rings. Um, uh, and I assume that's w where you got your name. Are those things anywhere near as important as engagement rings to you? Not as important, but it's part of the, you know, customer's journey. I mean, what we try to do is meet customers at the point of market entry to the category, which is usually either getting your ears pierced or buying an engagement ring. And then we try to um, follow that customer and, and, you know, throughout their life through other milestones like birthdays or graduations or, uh, you know, anniversaries, things like that. So uh, rings itself, fashion rings are a big part of our business. Also, our K banner makes all of the NFL Hall of Fame rings. Ah. Uh, and our Zales banner makes um, all of the um, rings for um, historically black, black colleges and universities. And so we have a presence in those special kind of rings as well. Gina, talk to us about the cost side of your business. What are the key drivers in your cost structure and kind of where are they moving these days? Yeah, that's a great story for us. We've really developed a competitive advantage in sourcing. Uh, we are vertically integrated. We're one of um, only a, a small group of retailers who are site holders with De Beers. So we buy diamonds right from the mine. We own our own cutting and polishing facility in Botswana uh, in contract with several others in India. And so we have very good visibility into how the prices move of diamonds uh, at different times. What that gives us is an ability to continuously offer customers a great value. Uh, and it also is part of our responsible sourcing strategy. We, we know that all of the gemstones and metals that we sell are sourced in an ethical way and completely conflict-free. That's something customers really care about. Uh, so I'm, I'm proud that our company can be a leader in that. How about the cost of gold? Is that not a, I mean, that's what I think of um, of course, the diamond is, I guess, far more valuable than the gold ring that you put it in. Um, but we have seen gold rise up. Right now, we're just under uh, $1,930 a troy ounce. Yes. So, so that does matter. What I would say is that while our product contains commodities like gold, like diamonds, it's not a commodity product. Uh, and so the retail pricing tends to have less fluctuation than the actual ingredient cost. Uh, and we tend to be able to price to cover that. Um, because, you know, when, when people want a, a great look, you know, with a gold necklace or a chain or whatever, they, um, they are willing to pay to get the high quality that we can provide them. The other thing that, that we do in a time like this is we bring innovations to the market. So one of the innovations that we have for holiday the technical name of it is electroform, but think of it like putting gold around a straw 
where you know we have a metal in the inside that we actually can can um, chemically remove like a straw and so then the gold is just formed around the outside so you get a very big look for a lot less cost because there's less actual gold in the product and so innovations like that we work you know years out with our vendors to be able to uniquely offer to our customers so they can get a great value you know no matter what the commodity price market looks like all right jenna thanks so much for joining us really appreciate getting some of your time uh Janet drossos uh she is the ceo of signa jewelers uh, that trades on the new york stock exchange Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Certainly one of the key stories we are following today is... Uh, the strike by the UAW against the big three automakers. Ed Corey, he's an anchor and reporter for Bloomberg Radio. He is at the Detroit Auto Show, so we can get a little bit of a different view there from the floor. Ed, uh, thanks so much for joining us here. What's the feeling there at, at the Auto Show about, you know, day one of this strike? You know, it's kind of a mixed vibe. The people who are behind the show promoting it, the people putting yeah. the displays yeah. together, the people... Uh, working refreshments and so on. They know that their goal is to continue to push the future, uh, the electric future of the auto industry, show off what's new and try to build some excitement. On the other hand, there is a lot of uh, nervousness about this, right? How long will it last? Uh, auto plants affected, uh, which are very profitable for the automakers. So uh, kind of a mixed bag of emotions here. Um, in terms of the political fallout, are they expecting you know, President Biden, who is reportedly going to come out and uh, make a statement on this today to get behind the unions as he is, you know, as he proclaims himself the most pro-union president in the history of America, or is he going to try and put a stop to this strike? You know, what well, we've been hearing from the president that he wants a, a, an agreement to be hammered out. He, he doesn't want the, the uh, detrimental economic effects that we've all heard about to, to come to fruition. Now, we're going to see some political uh, political action uh, this evening. Here at Huntington Place in Detroit, there will be a, a charity preview for the auto show. They raise uh, a ton of money for kids' charities in Detroit. Outside, just a block from here, uh, Bernie Sanders will be here with a bunch of UAW members. They will be demonstrating uh, near the UAW Ford Center. So we're going to have that type of, uh, you know, again, mixed feelings about this evening and the strike. And I think it's safe to say that everyone involved wants, wants a quick resolution. But right now, as you've been hearing, there doesn't seem to be one in sight, at least not in the near future. So, Ed, is there any sense out there of how strong or how together, how cohesive you, the rank and file are behind this strike? Oh, in Detroit, uh, there have been union members speaking out 
even at plants that are not affected yet by any type of walkout, as you know, selected plants have been uh, have been picked for, for for strike activity. But even those who are working today said they, you know, they feel a little nervousness about this. They don't want a lengthy strike. But, you know, the thing you hear over and over again from the rank and file here at Detroit in the area auto factories, they want they want to go back to where they were. They lost some ground. You know, 2008 was rough. Uh, they don't like the fact that some workers uh, doing the same job are making more th than others. So they want to that parity to be restored. And again, they would like to see a pay increase because they hear and read about the increases that the CEOs have been getting. <laughs> That's for sure. And, you know, uh, Ed, David Weston, uh, Bloomberg Television, uh, interviewed Mary Barra of, Barra of uh, GM earlier today. Boy, she came across, at least to me, as quite upset. I mean, I think she feels that General Motors has put a very credible deal on the table. And I kind of came away from that interview thinking, boy, I don't think the auto guys are going to be, the companies are going to be budging much, at least in the near, near term. Well, you might expect that kind of stance maybe, you know, in the initial phase of this strike. The automakers are, you know, trying uh, to, to, to maintain the position that they've had. You know, that we came through uh, tough economic times, that uh, there is a bright future ahead. And uh, you heard Mary Barra say that her salary is based on the performance of the company. And the company has earned money, and then just part of her contract, she gets increases too. But the rank and file, the union members say, "Hey, look, you know, we are a huge part of of the of of the of, of the success that the company has had. Uh, models are coming in; as, uh, new new models are coming on the scene. And as we head into an electric future, they want to make sure that they're not going to be behind. They at least want to recoup." some of what they believe they've lost over the last few years. Ed, you've been at the auto show for a couple of days now. I used to go every single year. It was like the biggest event uh, of my uh, on my calendar. Um, and it has dwindled, right? I mean, back in the day, everybody was at the Detroit Auto Show. It was the most important one for the industry. What's it like this year? And have you seen anything cool? Well, you know, the good news is it is... Bigger than last year. Of course, there was, you know, the pandemic when we didn't see any activity. And so, yeah, it is bigger than last year. No, it's not up to pre-pandemic levels, but there's a lot of excitement uh, at the show. I mean, sure, you have the prototypes, you know, the, the whiz-bang models that may or may not go into production 10 years from now. But models that you can buy, you know, in the very near future are, are pretty hot here. I mean, Ford is out with a new F-150. Uh, there is a Jeep uh, that's coming out, and, and it's, it's attracting a, a lot of excitement. And uh, also the Cadillac uh, CT5 has, has a new look this year, and that's been a very, very popular model. So those big three Detroit automakers with a strong showing of something, you know, people can really uh, check out and then, you know, put a deposit on or go, you know, order from the automaker, too. So, so there's still is some excitement here. 
Ed, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, I appreciate getting it uh, firsthand and reporting from you. Ed Curry's anchor and reporter for Bloomberg Radio in uh, the great city of Detroit. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I've been looking forward all day to this. We have somewhat of a Wall Street legend nice. uh, joining us right now. Todd Harrison is founding partner and chief investment officer at CB1 Capital Management, but he has spent decades on Wall Street working for the big banks, including Morgan Stanley. He founded a company that I think a lot of us loved very much, Minionville Media, um, back in the day, which won Emmy Awards and Uh, As I said, he founded the Ruby Peck Foundation for Children's Education, which is an important charity that I think a lot of people on Wall Street like to support as well. Um, Todd, first of all, great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us. Tell us what you're doing now at CB1 Capital Management. What's that business? I mean, we've been involved in the cannabis space for over a decade now. I actually just uncovered an an interview that we did about 10 years ago talking about how cannabis was going to be my single best investment idea for the next decade. And that was actually nine years ago. Um, And it hasn't been. Um, But uh, recently, there's been some news uh, that we think is going to change the space and change the fortunes and really move this in a better direction. But CB1 Capital, we have an investment arm, we have an advisory arm, and we have an advocacy arm where we help uh, Weldon Angeles and Mission Green to get people out of prison for for this plant. So it's pretty comprehensive. It surprises me that pot stocks haven't done better considering uh, the uptake of the product, you know, on uh, I think right now, 23 states have legalized recreational marijuana and uh, you only have to walk around New York City for a few minutes to understand that people are consuming cannabis. Um, is there a disconnect between the the sales, the outlook and, you know, the performance of the stocks? Certainly. Uh, I think it's one of the biggest asymmetric opportunities right now, right here that I've seen in my 34 years on Wall Street. And because and why now uh, is very much um, because of how we got here. Right. So because cannabis uh, has been a schedule one narcotic uh, for so long and we won't go into that rabbit hole uh, of why. Uh, but because of that, uh, the big takeaway is that U.S. cannabis companies can't deduct normal operating expenses. It's called Section 280E of the tax code. So they're being taxed at an effective rate right now of 75 to 80%, and they have been for years, which is why only the best uh, have been able to survive. And, and the industry was, uh, up until two weeks ago, really um, at, you know, looking at an extinction event because of the uh, regulatory construct. But uh, as you probably know, the HHS came out uh, two weeks ago on Wednesday. It was the last couple of days of summer. I was here, but not many people were. Uh, they recommended cannabis go to a Schedule 3, which would importantly remove that 280E tax code. Uh, and, and now we're just waiting on the DEA to codify that opinion. We think that could happen by year-end, uh, and then Biden can sign it into law before next year's election. Uh, that's just one thing that's happening. Safe banking, we heard last night. It was broke. Uh, news broke last night, and it's, it's moving around today or getting out today. 
Uh, that safe banking is going to go through a Senate committee markup. This is the, the sign or the tell uh, that the Senate's going to pass safe banking for the first time, uh, the upper chamber, uh, and then conceivably be uh, tacked onto a must-pass bill by year end. So there's a few things, right? There, uh, and if they all happen, this could get really spicy. But you know, just on the math alone, without anything else, if we move to a Schedule Three, if that gets codified, you're talking about a two to three x turn uh, on some of these names just on math. So. Explain to us why it's developed this way. Ten years ago, you thought it would be a much better proposition uh, than it has been. What have been the big missteps? What have maybe what has the industry missed? What has Washington missed uh, over the last decade? You know, it's interesting. When I, we spent a lot of time in Washington, and, and they had explained to us that the states are designed to be nimble, and the federal government's designed to move slow. Uh, and then added. Uh, but the thing about the federal government is that when change happens, it tends to happen all at once. Uh, but because of the disconnect between state and federal laws, uh, because the politicians have been very slow on the uptake, uh, because cannabis is a complex issue with a lot of stakeholders that, stakeholders that have a legitimate claim uh, to, to participate in the industry, uh, it's really become muddled down in a lot of different cross currents as uh, the illicit markets really proliferated. So, you know, as this comes online and becomes a legal uh, framework, which we just took, again, a seismic shift two weeks ago for the first time after a two and a half year bear market, this is the first domino and it's a big one. Uh, and if the others fall, it can get spicy, but we need this uh, to sort of uh, relax the arbitrage between federal and state law, allow these companies to operate on an even playing field. And after what they've just been through, I would argue that they're they're pretty lean and mean and ready to ready to go to work. Todd, if I look across the the market, there are a lot of different participants, right? Not just in North America, um, but mainly, right, in the U.S. and Canada. Are there companies you think that really have got it right? Are there companies you think that are solid, um, you know, investable uh, that we should be looking at more closely? And can you tell me some names? yeah, of course. And, and, I, and I say this, you know, we're, we have positions, we advise some of these companies, but we got to know a lot of companies very well. You know, iron sharpens iron during a two and a half year bear market. This was a 91% drawdown for MSOS, which is the ETF that we advise. Um, but, you know, certainly you can learn a lot just by watching how some of these companies did during that trough, as we think it is, as in front of all these states onboarding on the East Coast. Um, and, you know, you look at the, the Veranos, the Terrasens, the Green Thumbs. Uh, and there's others, right? Glasshouse in California. Uh, you, you know, as 280E goes away, as the federal government starts to move out of the way, uh, it has to be incremental, uh, the change. And, and that change, uh, because it's incremental, like we don't have the political wherewithal capacity to move this to a, to, to a deschedule where it should be, but Schedule 3 is a stepping stone to descheduling, happens to play right into the MSOs and the publicly traded companies' hands because they still have some of the protections and the barriers to entry uh, and a very regulated market at the state level, but the federal government's moving to uh, really support the Tenth Amendment and and let the states become the laboratories of democracy and those industries uh, evolve at the state level uh, as the federal framework takes shape. So this is a big, you know, this is a big, big catalyst. I don't think people really understand it. What's interesting, uh, A, uh, is that there is a, a pretty significant structural short in these names, we feel, uh, because of, uh, without getting too far into the weeds, because uh, the U.S. 
cannabis companies have to list on the Canadian Stock Exchange. Uh, they can't list on U.S. stock exchanges, but the MSOS ETF is on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, there's been a pretty pernicious uh, algorithm that's been uh, hitting these uh, stocks down, naked short, we believe, naked shorting these stocks, uh, routing them through Europe, however it may be. But we think they're still there. We think they're still trapped. And we'll see you know, how that plays out uh, over the time to come. But the other interesting part is all the institutions, and you know, you know, we talked to a lot of these guys. Uh, we made a lot of calls after this news, and even the, the institutions or the funds or the family offices that can buy U.S. cannabis are telling us, a lot of them are telling us, after so many disappointments, we want to actually see it happen. We want to see this play through. We want to see it get done before we're going to believe it. Uh, and I think that's incredibly bullish also. Todd, given all that background, what types of investments are you making in the space today? I mean, we mentioned some of them, uh, you know, there's only a hand, there's really only uh, so many uh, tradable names in this space. I but mean, your I top, we, we, the top holdings in MSOS are Green Thumb, Cureleaf, yep. Verano, Trueleaf, Cresco. So that's, yep. is, there, is there anything in the private space you're looking at? Sure. I mean, just to talk about MSOS, the way that that portfolio is constructed is that fang on one side that, you know, if you look at Y2K as sort of a preamble of what we're going through, everything they said technology was going to be happened, but not before the tech crash. I think cannabis is that is at that spot right now. Um, but I think that, you know, the fang, if you will, those five names uh, on one side and then forgotten, as we say, some of these lower tiered MSOs on the other side, I think, are, are having more beta because a lot of them were, were trading at their cash levels a couple of weeks ago because there was no visibility on how they were going to service their debt, on what their on what their cash generation levers uh, were going to be. And that's starting to come into view right now. So both of the, uh, I think that portfolio is well positioned MSOS. And again, we're involved. Uh, but on the private side, yes, uh, the capital markets have been shut down for a number of years. Uh, and I think that, you know, not only for the stocks, but for the research and for the sentiment, uh, this will help close the chasm between the state and the federal uh, sort of discrepancies. Do you have a view on what the heck has gone wrong in New York State? I mean, it yes. is an absolute <laughs> mess, right? There's only a few licensed um, dispensaries here. They only sell a, a select number of products. The best stuff that everybody wants you know, the Kana and the Camino products um, are only in like Empire and then, you know, the million other shops around town that aren't licensed. How did they do such a bad job in New York? <laughs> well, you sound like a consumer, my man. I mean, you, you just <laughs> rattled off a couple of brands right there that this is not your first rodeo, uh, I could tell. Um, but New York, I mean, you know, it's a cautionary tale uh, and, and, and listen, well-intentioned, right? I mean, they tried to do the right thing, but what happened was when, when COVID hit and, and, you know, again, follow the money. The reason this was coming online in all these states was because the tax revenues are ridiculous. The job creations are ridiculous. And oh, by the way, it's good for you, like as, as we're finding out more and more. But when the COVID, when COVID hit and the federal government just completely, you know, flushed all these budgets with cash. New York in particular said, you know, we're going to create this uh, framework that we think is uh, just and, and, and rights the wrongs of, of the war on drugs. And like I said, well-intentioned, uh, but anybody that's been around the block a few times knows that you can't legislate wealth, right? And there's a big difference between criminal justice, people shouldn't be in prison for a plant, 
and social justice, right? They necessarily shouldn't be at the front of the line either. Um, and I think that there's there's a balance there, and there's a, a to get you know we can do this together. I believe that, but New York never really allowed uh, the opportunity. Maryland did it right. Missouri did it right. They levered the medical industry into an adult use industry, and then when they made money, they you know sort of addressed the social issue, uh, justice issues. New York tried to do that the opposite way. Uh, now you walk down, there's 14,000, you know, street, uh, 14,000 shops in New York. Most New Yorkers think that's the legal framework, uh, but that's going to transition, right? So it's a right. process. I hope so. Over time, prices will come down. The illicit market will get crowded out. Besides, they're selling pesticides and emulsification agents that are literally poison. So that'll go away, like bathtub gin once went Dude, away. imagine if and you could only buy Brooklyn Lager. Yep. You want a Lagunitas or you want a Sierra Nevada <laughs> and they're telling you you can't get that at a legal shop. The social injustice of it all. Todd Harrison, thank you so much for joining us. Founding partner and CIO at CB1 Capital Management. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's get to what I'm driving this week. Yeah, what are you driving? I Well, I just a disclaimer that, you know, the car makers allow me to use these cars to test drive. I've been covering the industry for 20 years now, and so I often get a new car or a truck or a motorcycle to test out. This week, I have something special. Um, and so the purpose of this hit is twofold. Number one, I wanna tell our viewers about a, a product. Um, and number two, I'm trying to convince you to get <laughs> to get one of these cars. I'm going to bring in my buddy, Matt Hardegree, to help me do that. Uh, he was the editor-in-chief of Jalopnik. He's now working on a site called Autopia, but he's been also in the industry for a couple of decades here covering cars. Matt, you know, it's long been the dream of, I think, every auto journalist to get an absolute stripper of a 911. That is <laughs> to order the base model with no options at all. And I have almost achieved that in this test ride. It's a Carrera T, which is like already the stripped down version okay. of, the, of the 911. Um, it only has the essentials, the things you need, like a short throw shifter. And it has almost no options on it. I absolutely love it um, with one exception, and that is the color. I love the color. You look great in it. I don't know, Matt, you probably can't see it, but maybe you've seen, the color is called Ruby Star Neo. It's like a purple pink, like a Barbie pink. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's the best color. You got the best color, and you're complaining about it. My daughter thinks so as well, but give me your, your thoughts first off on the Carrera T, the 911 Carrera T. It's great. I mean, I, I think what Porsche has done is realized that as with a lot of things in life, the more options, the better, and the more money they can get. And, you know, for an enthusiast, I am not likely to buy a 911 Turbo. It's a little pricey, but if I'm in a 911 range, they have created something that fits between the true base Carrera and the Carrera S, and they call it the Carrera T. And somehow, by creating a cheaper version of the Carrera S, they've made it more desirable than a Carrera S. They are selling at, at pretty high levels for people I've spoken to. And the problem is, even though it's the stripper version, it's a little bit faster than the base Carrera. Um, I model, I, I did one myself. I built one before the show. And I was like, oh, you know, it starts at 130. That's such a great price. I'm only going to add a couple of options. And you get on the Porsche <laughs> personalization page and you're like, well, I need Harderberg yellow 
uh, seat belts. I definitely need to have the special brown. I like it in brown, the special brown color. I need this. I need that. And then all of a sudden, it's uh, you're uh, you're one hundred and forty thousand dollars into a car. So it's genius. I think it's genius. You got it with the manual. Who cares what color it is? As long as it has a manual, that is the right car to get. Well, and that's the beauty of this. So the base model Carrera, the absolute cheapest one you could get, doesn't have the manual as an option. You have really? to get the PDK. Oh, please. Which is a very amazing automatic transmission, but it's still an automatic transmission. And Matt, the, the benefit that the, the T has over the Carrera S, I was talking Luke, with Luke Van de Zandy, um, you know, who runs PR for uh, the 911 at Porsche in the US. He told me, you can't get the short throw shifter on the S. You have to go up a level to the GTS to get that. And that, to me, has been the revelation with this car. You know, I had a Carrera S, a 991 Carrera S. Sure. And I, I had never thought about changing out the stick. This little stick is so much better than the big stick. I don't like a big stick. I like a little <laughs> stick. Who does? You know? I, the other revelation for me with this car is the cloth seats are amazing. I've never preferred cloth over leather. And these are just, I'd rather have them. So... I feel like uh, it's an opportunity for Paul Sweeney to get a new car and save a little bit of money because he's not buying the Turbo S. 100%. It's a great deal, Paul. I, All right. I think you, you would be silly not to buy it at this point. <laughs> hey, Matt, how about you're, you like Matt are a car guy, and you're at the high end here. I can't imagine the Ferraris, the Lamborghinis, the Porsches of the world, they're going electric willingly. Are they scratching and clawing to remain in the ice world? No. If you look at, especially in Germany, there's been a big push with the EU regulations coming up. Uh, the theoretically that in a decade, you know, we're going to have to have essentially no gas-powered uh, cars. To get that legislation through Brussels, basically the Germans said, uh, specifically Porsche and Volkswagen said, you know what, e-fuels, give us an exception for carbon-neutral e-fuels, because no matter what, even if they build electric cars, even if they sell primarily electric cars, no one I've talked to at Ferrari, no one I've talked to at Porsche has given up on a, on a gas-powered car, because for a sports car, even though an electric car might be faster, nothing just sounds quite, and I love driving electric sports cars, nothing sounds right. You don't get that feel of a short-throw shifter. Like, you, you need that visceral reaction because that's what you're paying for you're not paying to get somewhere faster you're paying to get somewhere with more excitement with more joy that's uh this car definitely fits that bill i mean it isn't the fastest car on the road um it doesn't feel as quick as my carrera s and it doesn't have as much horsepower it's 379 horsepower um you know my carrera had i think 400 and now the carrera s has probably 430 um but it's got that build up it's got that uh you know, the gradual um, acceleration and the sound from the sport exhaust is just amazing that I absolutely love. Plus, it only weighs like 3,100 pounds. So that's incredibly light. By the way, maybe you can help Paul out with his conundrum. Um, veering away from the 911 for a moment, he has the last manual 5 Series. He has the 2014 535i uh, with a stick. And now he's worried that it's going to start getting old and he's going to have to make repairs. Um should he get something else or should he just make the repairs and keep the car that he loves the most? He should get rid of it and give it to me because I have a, I have a 2003 five series, 530 I with the five speed and it has 235,000 wow. miles on it. 235,000 miles. 235. The, the, look, it's 2014. It's a little sketchy. You're, you're, you're on the edge where the car is so modern that sometimes fixing things becomes 
cost prohibitive. Yep. Um, but you're just on the right side of the edge. I think I think you can make this car last, and it's not like mine. Mine is like Legos. You can pop something out, you can pop something in, and you can generally <laughs> fix the car. Your car isn't Legos, unfortunately. It's tech Lego Technic. It's a little bit more advanced, but no, you're never gonna find. This is the problem. You're never gonna find something new that feels as good as that car because they can't make cars like that anymore so either put it on bring a trailer and regret it for the rest of your life or you know spend two or three thousand dollars a year with your mechanic getting it i i, I think that's the best move gotta keep the wow. car or give it to me also an <laughs> option, give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that could be an option all right matt thanks so much for joining us uh, lots of lots for me to think about over the weekend uh matt hardegree he's a publisher of the auto autopian sorry and talking cars with matt miller matt miller driving the Barbie pink uh, Porsche Carrera T. Love it. I have to give it back, unfortunately. I only had it for a week. But I joined the Autopian. So I get that membership, I think, for a whole year. And plus, they're going to send me like a a velvet T-shirt. Oh, cool. Very good. And I'll tell you, the Bloomberg Courtyard is a great place to kind of showcase cars. It looks cool. Yeah. I mean, you you could rent that out, maybe make a couple of bucks, whoever owns this place. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.